For those that are in remaining in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12 this morning. Verses 7 through 12. As mentioned, our topic for this morning is this idea of being steadfast. James uses the word patient or steadfast or establish your hearts. They are related concepts, but as mentioned, to be patient is to trust God in our interactions with other people, especially when those people let us down, betray us, stab us in the back, do any number of things to us that we continue to trust God. And to be steadfast relates to our trusting in God regardless of the circumstances that come our way. Any number of adverse circumstances can happen to us. James, as we noted, is the half-brother of Jesus. They share a mother, but they do not share a father as Jesus is virgin-born. James grew up in the house with Jesus, with God in human form. And so he had a front row seat to perfection. But he did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Of course, as we mentioned, any of us with siblings would not believe that our brother was the son of God, uh, despite perhaps uh, that claim. And yet, James has come to faith in his half-brother, knowing him to be Lord and Savior. And so his letter has been very bold and forthright and fairly blunt. He doesn't have a lot of time to waste. He feels, no doubt, he wasted a lot of time not believing in Christ, in his half-brother. And so, not that you can make up for lost time necessarily, but he knows that the days are short and wants to give great encouragement as well as challenge to his audience. He has walked us through sort of the big three that he has on his mind. Uh, do we watch our speech? Do we bridle our tongue? Which means, then, is our heart being transformed because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Do we have a care and concern for those who are helpless? Do we look outside of ourselves and look to share the love of Christ with those around us? And are we keeping ourselves unspotted by, unstained by the world? Do we have a vision of and is our mind set on the things to come? Or are we wrapped up in and prim giving primacy to the things of this life? And he's unpacked all of that as we've walked through the book of James. And now we get to the end of chapter 5, and this is the second last sermon in James. And out at the farm next Sunday, we will wrap up our look in the book of James, talking about prayer and faith. But this morning, we want to look at patience and steadfastness, especially in suffering. Reading between the lines, and again, oftentimes as we read the letters of the New Testament, it's like listening to one half of a phone conversation. You have to try to get the implications from what we have, although we don't have the full picture. It would appear that this group of people that James is writing to have faced persecution. They face persecution by those that are rich, those that are in positions of authority, that are misusing that power and authority to abuse them. They've suffered persecution because of their faith. There's a number of things that they are walking through, and he wants to encourage them, and so we will hope to be encouraged this morning as we read. So James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Again, if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here. Maybe you came this morning, you don't have a Bible. 
Uh, We want you to know that everything we do here is based on the Word of God. It's rooted in and founded on God's Holy Word. It's not our opinions, our thoughts, our brilliance. We don't have any. It's all Him. And so we want you to have the Word of God in front of you. And so whether that's digitally or uh, in a paper form, in a book form, there is under the chairs in front of you a copy of God's Word. And on page 952, page 952 is James chapter 5. And uh, follow along with me, if you would, as we read verses 7 through 12 this morning. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of God. James has a reputation for being somewhat scattered, and I don't think that it's well-deserved, but that is the reputation that he has. As you read through his book, his letter, oftentimes it sounds like he has ADHD, He starts down one path and zing, he's on another path. Where did that come from? But upon closer inspection, I think there's a lot of uh, structure and organization to James's letter, and I hope that you can see that this morning as we walk through. What he's doing in these verses is he's going to uh, share with us a principle for us to follow, an understanding for us to have. He's going to give us an example of what that looks like in practice, And then he's going to apply it for us at the end of these two sections that we're going to look look at. And so you may ask, what is grumbling and complaining and not making an oath? What in the world does that have to do with patience and steadfastness? Well, buckle your chair belts and hang on because hopefully we'll get to that as we walk through God's word together this morning. And so in verses 7 and 8, I believe what James has for us is that we need to be steadfast in God's sovereignty. I don't think any of us sitting here this morning would say that life has turned out exactly as we wanted it to. As we look back, and maybe as we sit here this morning, there have been seasons of uncertainty, seasons of instability, seasons of pain and suffering, uh, seasons of frustration. All kinds of adverse things have come our way. And no doubt there's been times, even in our walk with God and our relationship with him, where we have questioned whether we have the ability to hang on. I'm done. I don't know if I can even make another day. And so James is writing a group of people that are just hanging on. The system is rigged against them. They are living under oppression by a foreign nation. There is persecution because of their relationship with God through Christ by the Spirit. There's no doubt times where they question, I don't, know if I, can, I don't know if I can hang on. I don't know if I can stay firm in the truths of God's word. I don't know if I can be steadfast and immovable. The first thing that James wants to let us know is we need to be steadfast in God's sovereignty. 
In the first place, we can trust God's plan. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. I hope it is of great comfort to us this morning that God has a plan. We've had lots of plans. We had plans even this morning. And rarely do things go according to our plans. There's way too many variables. Weather and accidents and car batteries and, sorry, that's a personal story, um, and all kinds of stuff that come into our plans. We have plans. We make all kinds of plans. Rarely does thing, do things go according to plan. But there is one who is sitting on the throne of the universe, who is in the heavenlies, the one who spoke all things into existence, that has a plan for all things, and all things, yes, all things are working in accordance with that plan. There is a master plan. Any of you here this morning feel like things are a little unsteady right now in our culture and society? Things seem a little crazy? People are believing things that are kind of unthinkable in many ways? It seems as though there isn't really a plan. Things seem, things seem a little scattered. And yet we must realize and rest in the reality that there is a master plan. God has it, and all things are working according to that plan. Whatever comes your way has meaning and significance and purpose because it comes at the hand of your good father if you're his child this morning. Nothing happens that takes him by surprise. Nothing happens because he was sleeping or on vacation. Nothing happens because he is indifferent or does not care. Everything that happens, as Pastor Luke reminded us a number of Sundays ago, everything that happens comes from the good plan of our loving and graciously sovereign Heavenly Father. Everything. It's all according to his plan. So James says, in the midst of chaos, establish your hearts in this. Jesus is coming back. As surely as he went back into the heavenlies, ascended to the right hand of his Father on high, he is going to return. We don't know when, but we do know he is coming back. And the powers of this world do not rule supremely. Not even the evil one, our greatest enemy, rules supremely. There is one who does, and it is God Almighty. Secondly, we can trust God's timing. James says, be patient, therefore, brothers. You also be patient. How many of us here this morning are, are nailing patience? I mean, we just, we got that thing. Look at this right here, example. It's fantastic. We want things now. We live in an instant gratification society. We don't want to wait. We don't like waiting in line for our coffee order. We don't like waiting in line at the bank. We don't waiting, like waiting in any line. We don't like waiting in traffic. We want things to go on our time schedule. And James says, not only does God have a plan, but he has perfect timing. It's not our timing, but it is his timing. Our late friend Tim Keller had a saying, and I posted it on our group Facebook uh, page this week. When you pray, God will either answer your prayer with a yes 
or her answer it in the way that you would have prayed if you know all that he knows. God's timing is perfect. It's rarely the same as our timing, but it's exactly as it needs to be. And so James says, be patient, stand firm. Steadfastness is to stay in the same place, not to be moved, not to be hurried and rushed about, not to be panicky, but to stand firm because we know that God has a plan and we know that God's timing is perfect. Thirdly, as we jump down to the end of verse 8, we can trust God's perspective. What does he say? Establish your hearts. Speak to yourself. Oftentimes we listen to ourselves more than we talk to ourselves. And by that I mean whatever comes into our mind oftentimes is what we listen to. So the doubts and the fears and the worries and the anxieties, that's what we give uh, first place. But James says, as do the other New Testament authors, you need to talk to yourself, speak the gospel to yourself every day. And so he says, your heart is full of a lot of worry and anxiety and fear. Establish it. Make it firm through this. We know that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Throughout the New Testament, the New Testament authors not only say God is, the Lord is coming back, they say he's coming back soon. And we like to speak back to them and say, hey, John on the Isle of Patmos and James here writing and these others, I don't know if you know this, but it's been about 2,000 years having seen Jesus. How is it that these guys writing close to the departure of Christ can say, Christ's return is nigh, it's soon, it's at hand. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. How long, O Lord? And here we are almost 2,000 years since his ascension and he still has not returned. And yet, we should be comforted by the fact that God has a different perspective than we do. There's a number of verses in our questions for further reflection. A day with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God doesn't see time as we do. So his perspective is eternal. Our perspective is finite. He has a much broader view of things. There is no time in God's purview. Past, present, and future are all the same to him. One of his names is I am. Not I was or I will be, I am. He's the ever-present one. Everything is present to him in that sense. And so we can get ourselves a little panicky. We can watch way too much news, and we can watch way too much of our favorite YouTubers and influencers, and we can get all of these things going on in our heads and our hearts and our minds, and we can become very unstable if we let ourselves listen to these voices. And James says to us, establish your hearts with this. Our loving Heavenly Father, who is graciously sovereign over all things, has a plan, and it is a perfect one. His timing is perfect and his perspective is perfect. So rest in him as we have just sung. What is an example of this? Go back to the back half of verse seven. So James says, what does this look like then in practice? See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Farming is an occupation of patience. There are so many variables when it comes to farming. We can do what we can do, but ultimately God must do what he's going to do. And timing is a big one of them. So James says to us, like the farmer who is patient, he's done what he can do. 
Now we must wait for God to do what he's going to do. In the timing that God is going to do it in, be patient. Understand God is doing all things after his perfect will. Now seemingly he's going to take a little bit of a left turn because verse 9 doesn't seem to relate, but I believe it does. And so notice in the second place that he applies steadfastness. Steadfastness applied in verse 9. So knowing what he's told us, trust in God, his plan, his timing, his perspective is perfect. Trust in him, establish your hearts, steady yourself with these truths. An example of it is a farmer. You must trust the process, be patient. Now he says, now how do we apply that? And he uses one of the three that he's talked about. Helping the helpless, watching what we say, and keeping ourselves unstained from the world. What does he say here? Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When things don't go our way, what is our typical response and reaction? Oh, fantastic. My plan was this, but this is way better. Usually not, right? We vent, right? That's our, that's our favorite pastime, it seems. We come home for a day at work, we just want to vent. I just got to vent. I got to get things off my chest. Here's all the things today that didn't go my way. James says, a heart that is steady and established on the truths of God's word is not a heart that grumbles and complains. If we believe that God's plan is perfect, if we believe his timing is perfect, if we believe his perspective is perfect, then complaining and grumbling and murmuring and mumbling under our breath can't coexist with that belief. How can we say, God, I trust you, your ways are perfect, thank you, and at the same time say, and here's the 50 reasons why today wasn't any good. It, it can't coexist. But also what does James say? Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Who bears the brunt of our venting? Who is the ones occupying the front row seats of our grumbling and murmuring and complaining? Is it not our brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it not our family members, the ones that are closest to us, the ones that we say we love the most and that love us the most in return? Are they not the ones that we, that we grumble and complain to, especially on the deeper matters of our life? You ever stop somebody in the grocery store and say, I have a real burden on my heart. Can we have 15 minutes? It's not strangers that feel the weight of our discontent. It is our brothers and sisters in Christ. And oftentimes, they're not even the, the, the focus of it, but they are the recipient of it. What had Moses done for the nation of Israel? He came back after 40-year absence, walked in and challenged Pharaoh. The Israelites saw the ten plagues and the effects thereof. They were there when Moses raised his staff and brought, God brought them through the Red Sea. And when they don't have enough to eat, who is the first focus of their grumbling, murmuring, and complaining? Moses, you loser. You're the worst leader on the planet. What'd you do bringing us out here for? All it is is rocks. We were way better off in Egypt. Yeah, the slavery thing, sure. But at least we had stuff to eat. I mean, come on, Moses. And we do this, don't we? A discontented heart 
A heart not trusting God is a heart that is full of murmuring and grumbling and complaining. And who's the recipients of that? It's those that also say they trust in God. And in fact, sometimes even more so, because how can you trust in this God when he's failed me so miserably in our minds? James mentions Job. What is Job's wife's counsel? Curse God and die. Job, what are you, what are you, why are you so foolish? How can you trust this God? He's taken everything from us. James says grumbling and complaining should not be a part of our experience. If our hearts and minds are stayed on Christ, if we are content in him, there's no room for grumbling and complaining and certainly not against or towards those that are brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not want to be judged, he says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. I wonder how we would respond differently if we realize that God is always listening in on the conversations we have with fellow believers. You ever had one of those moments where you're talking about somebody and then they magically appear? God's always there. And so as we vent to our fellow believers in Christ, God is not unaware of that. He's, he's right there. So I'm not good enough. So my plan's not perfect enough. My timing is off. Let me correct that. <laughs> no. <laughs> Our God is sovereign. And so we can remain steadfast in his sovereignty. I think then James switches gears somewhat, although it's related that we can also in the third place then be steadfast in God's heart. We know his plan as we see it unfold, but sometimes we can sort of just grit our teeth and bear up under it, but we don't actually enjoy it. And that is not to say that we need to be masochistic, but it is to say, do we understand not just what God is doing, but why he's doing it? Do we understand his heart? And so notice in verses 10 and 11, 11 in particular, you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How can we be steadfast in God's heart? In the first place, we can trust his plan. How many of us growing up as children understood every decision that our parents made? Especially when we were teenagers. Because it's amazing, when we turn 14, all of a sudden our parents don't know anything. It's a nuts. We looked up to them just yesterday. They knew so much, and now today, man, they, you guys don't know anything. I, however, know way more than you guys do. This is amazing. And allow me to share with you my 14 years of wisdom. We rarely understand everything that is going on behind the scenes. But we should understand this. Down at the base... Our parents, hopefully, are doing whatever they're doing out of love. They're not doing this because they hate us. You don't want me to have any fun. You hate me. You spoil everything. Guilty as charged. But I love you. That's why this is going on. You don't understand it now, but hopefully you will understand it later. But now, even if you don't trust the plan or if you outwardly trust the plan... <laughs> Inwardly, at another level, trust the heart behind the plan. God has your best interest in mind. God does not 
abuse his saints. God takes no delight in our pain. He allows it. He brings it into our lives, but it always has a purpose. It always has meaning and significance. Joseph's pain and Job's pain and Sarah's pain of infertility and the list goes on and on and on. All of these things are at God's good hand and his heart behind it is love. So James says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. What's God's purpose in this? What's he doing here? He's doing what he's doing so that we will bring more glory to him, become more like his character and for, therefore, our good. Trust in the second place, then, God's compassion. How the Lord is compassionate. It's an amazing verse in Matthew's Gospel, and it's also in our questions for the reflection. Dane Ortland has written a whole book about it called Gentle and Lowly. I would highly recommend you get a copy of that book. Read it, digest it, underline it. In the spirit of the Puritans and Thomas Goodwin's The Heart of Christ and other authors, We oftentimes know some of God's attributes, but rarely do we stop and consider his heart. What is his motivation behind what he does? And Jesus says something in Matthew's gospel that's unique. He says, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. God is not harsh. God does nothing selfishly. God does what he does for our good which means that which makes us more like his character, transforms us. He's compassionate and kind. So often we run from him, but when we ought to run to him, he is our safety and our security. As the prodigal runs the father, or I should say the father runs the prodigal. That is the heart of the father. One of the most significant verses in scripture is also the shortest. And I've shared this at a number of funerals. In John 11, two words, Jesus wept. And it's always intrigued me because Jesus knows the situation well ahead of time. He knows Lazarus is going to die and he purposely stays across the Jordan and does not go immediately to Mary and Martha and Lazarus when he finds out Lazarus is sick. He also knows that in just a few seconds, he's going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is going to come back to life from the dead. So why does he weep? It's speculative, but I think we get a glimpse into the deepest recesses of Jesus' heart. He sees the pain, and he sees the suffering, and he sees the reality of two sisters who arguably probably don't have parents, and Lazarus was the one who was going to provide for them. He sees not just the moment, but he sees all of the implications of the moment, and he sees the weeping and the wailing and the grief, and it moves him. He is not indifferent to our pain. Understand his heart. His heart is compassionate. It is also merciful. Trust God's mercy. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How often do we deserve God's wrath? And yet, what do we get instead? We get his mercy and his grace. He could remove us right here where we stand. The impact of Ananias' fire on the early church is quite profound. And among the many reasons for that, I have to imagine that if we were sitting there and heard about that story... How many other people in the early church had told a lie? 
whoo, dodged ball on that one. And I was fire a bunch of filthy liars, but me, I never deceive anybody. No, 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 no. <laughs> Why them? Because that could have just as easily been me. And where we sit right here this morning, God could strike us dead and he'd be perfectly justified in doing so. And yet he allows us to breathe. He allows our heart to beat. We see even Jesus on the cross. He is the one that allows the hearts to beat and the lungs to breathe of the individuals that are putting him on that cross. Oh, the depth of the mercy and the grace of God. And then he gives us two examples. As he gave us an example of trusting God's sovereignty, so he gives us two examples of trusting God's heart. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read some of the prophets, there's some pretty crazy stuff going on there. It's our intention to go into the book of Daniel as we start a new year here in September. But after Daniel, we're getting into the book of Hosea. And Hosea is, is a, it's a hard book. What God asked Hosea to do is difficult for us to process. What he asked Isaiah to do, Jeremiah to go through. Everybody loves Isaiah 6. It's the most preached verse at every missions conference. Here am I, Lord, send me. What's Isaiah's assignment? No one will turn from their wickedness and repent. Not a soul. I'd be like me and Luke preaching here Sunday in and Sunday out and there's nobody in the seats. Or if they are, no one's listening. Now it's arguable how many people are listening right now, but I digress. No one, no one will repent, Isaiah. You're not gonna establish a church. No one is gonna come to faith in Christ. No one's getting baptized. Your ministry by all earthly metrics is gonna be an abject failure. You will not be on church planting monthly. Your, your blog will not be read. You will not get an article posted online. No one is going to listen to what you have to say. That's the assignment. Ezekiel, the sheer amount of weirdness in the book of Ezekiel <laughs> boggles the imagination. And yet, what did these individuals do? What did these prophets do? They trusted God's sovereignty and they trusted God's heart. Even when they didn't quite understand it. Habakkuk, Lord, how long are you going to allow this wickedness in our nation to continue? We should not get, we have privileged status for your people, but my goodness, we are not ask, acting like it. The, the rank idolatry and, and, and sin that is in our nation, God, when are you going to act? Don't worry, Habakkuk, I got this. I'm sending the Babylonians. Who? That's like our context. God, Canada is just such a wicked nation. We've, we've run away from you. We've, we've gone so far from you. We, we sacrifice our children and, and on the altar of our own desires and passions. God, we're such a wicked nation. When are you going to judge? Don't worry. I'm sending ISIS. Well, we're bad, but like, really? They trusted God's plan and they trusted God's heart. And James says, we count them blessed who were steadfast. They were not moved by their interactions with people or their interactions with circumstances. In both cases, they trusted God. And then he says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Job's a difficult book, arguably maybe one of the most difficult in Scripture. 
that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And at the end of it, what does Job say? I thought I knew you. Now, now I'm beginning to know you. So I'm going to lay my hands on my mouth, which has been moving far too often. (laughs) And I'm just going to be still. And I'm going to listen. And I'm going to learn. Trust God's plan. Trust God's heart. And then lastly, he applies it in verse 12. Steadfastness applied as we wrap up and head into communion this morning. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now again, this is such an interesting verse, and to have it here, again, doesn't seem to make sense. James, this is not the application that we figured that you would come up with. It would make sense, just trust God's heart, okay, you know, spend some more time in prayer, more time in God's word, more being, time being thankful, not taking an oath. Where is this coming from? Now, there is the sense of making sure that if you take a vow, you perform it. We looked at that back when we were in Ecclesiastes, among other passages. But that's not what James is driving at here. James is driving at something similar to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who in the Gospels made this same analogy. We take oaths because what we are saying in that moment is, this part of my speech, I'm serious about this. Other things might be questionable and doubtful, but this time, this time I'm telling the truth. And I'm going to take some kind of an external oath to prove it. And James says, everything we say and every circumstance we are in are important. We pick and choose. We say, okay, yeah, yeah, regular conversation, no big deal. But now, now I'm serious. One of my professors in seminary used to put it this way. When you go to court, they make you swear on the Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And he said if he was put in that circumstance, he would affirm. Why the difference? Because what you're saying is, normally I don't tell the truth or I might, I might not. It's questionable. But I'm swearing now. Now I'm definitely going to tell the truth. And the reality is we should always tell the truth in all of our interactions. If we trust God's heart in all things, then everything that comes out of our mouth should be as a result of that. So that we don't have to add on external oaths to what we say, but all of what comes out of our mouth speaks the heart of God that we are also trusting in. So it's not just just now I'm going to, this is serious, so I'm going I'm to take an oath here. <laughs> and I think partly too, as we've talked about, James realizes our time is short. Everything we say ought to be coming out of a transformed heart. And so we're here this morning and things are a little crazy in our society and in our culture. Things are a little unstable on many fronts. We've gone through what James has had for us, and as he closes... He wants us to know we need to be patient and steadfast. But again, as we try to always say, don't mishear this sermon. We hear sermons like this, and almost invariably our response is, okay, I haven't been trusting God as much as I should. I've been doubting him. I've been questioning the heart behind what he's been doing in my life. So I need to do better at that. 
Please don't hear that. But hear this. Where we fail, Christ has succeeded. Our goal leaving this place is not to say, I'm going to trust God more by my own strength. I'm going to really try hard to trust God. No. Our goal is to run to him and say, God, I don't trust you as I should. Help me. God, I doubt your heart by times. Help me. God, I question how you're doing things. Help me. Help me to see how big you are, how small I am. Help me on a daily basis. And know this. I love that. One of the, I love all the songs we sing, but I love that Jesus strong and kind. Do you guys notice the, the change in the third verse? It goes along and says, Jesus has said, if I am this, I can come to him. But you notice verse three, what does it say? Jesus says, if I am last, what? He will come to me. He is our hope. He is our only source of strength and wisdom and trust. We need more of him and less of ourselves. I'm in a book right now called Deeper, also by Dane Ortland, and greatly enjoying it. The corrective is not to try harder and do more. The corrective is to lean harder and trust more. We need to run to him. In these days in particular, trust his sovereignty. Trust his heart. All things come by his good and graciously sovereign hand. Let's look to him in prayer this morning as we transition into our time of communion. Father, I thank you for your word. It is always so relevant. Father, how often do we uh, mistrust you and your heart? Do we fail to lean on you? To believe that we know better and with the limited scope of our understanding, we would have done things differently. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to trust your heart in all things. Help us to, in all our ways, acknowledge you, and you will direct our paths. Father, we live in strange times. Times that were not for your sovereignty, we may very well be shaken. The speed with which our culture has run headlong along the path of destruction seems to have amplified at a pace that we have not seen in a very long time or ever in our lifetimes. And yet, Father, we can trust, must trust, in your good plan and in your good and compassionate and merciful heart behind your plan. So, Father, let us trust you more, lean harder into you, and focus on what you have called us to do. To love people, to serve them, to serve those that are helpless, to have our hearts continually transformed by you, which guards and protects and changes and transforms our speech, and to keep our focus on you and not on this world. This world is passing away. You are eternal. Ground us, root us, establish us in you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.